and welcome to Making Sense of Complexity, featuring conversations with complexity science practitioners and philosophers. Our goal with this series is to share insights on how to make sense of our complex and uncertain world. Today, our guest is Dr. Klaus Landsman, a professor of mathematical physics at Radboud University in Netherlands and winner of the Spinoza Prize in 2022. We were introduced to Klaus by an earlier guest, Nasa Nianowski, who remarked that Klaus is a superstar in the world of theoretical physics. He has been deeply immersed in its mathematical complexities for decades, and preparing for this conversation was very challenging, as we try to make sense of two profound questions. His final proof that quantum physics cannot be deterministic, and how do we explain the phenomenon known as cosmic fine-tuning? We'll be citing three of his works, and there are links in the show notes. Let's give it a go. Klaus, welcome to Making Sense of Complexity. Welcome. Thanks, George. Yeah. So where are you calling in from today? Oh, so I'm uh, living in in Nijmegen, which is a place uh, just in the center of the Netherlands near the German border. I am from Amsterdam that most of your listeners will have heard of, but I'm in in Nijmegen. It's in fact the oldest city in the Netherlands. It's 2,000 years old. Uh, That's a lot older than uh, any place in the U.S., for sure, Uh, any of our modern cities. Um, And uh, what's the weather like? It's cloudy, but not rainy. So typically in Holland, it rains, uh, but it doesn't at the moment. It's, it's very pleasant, in fact, at the moment. So well, good, a good day. Yeah, it's a good day in many ways. Yeah, yeah. so it's a good day for a conversation on, uh, yes. on complexity. And I, I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Um, and uh, I did get a chance to look at some of the materials I've written, quite extensive. Uh, I put three citations in the show notes. Um, one of them is the textbook uh, you wrote in 2001 on the foundations of relativity. And yeah. uh, I noticed that that uh, book was dedicated to Roger Penrose, who won the Nobel Prize in physics in 2020. He's, he's one of my personal heroes as well. And you, you have a personal relationship with Roger and have met him. And I wonder what, what do you feel is so special about him? Ah. So first about his work. So I would say he created most of the mathematics necessary to deal with black holes and also with the Big Bang in a way that went far beyond Einstein. So the theory he's famous for his work on this is general relativity, the theory of space and time and gravity that sort of governs the universe, including black holes and the Big Bang. And Einstein left it at a certain point, uh, which wasn't enough to really proceed to the the really deep questions about singularities and event horizons and so on. And uh, from the the late 1950s onwards, Penrose took it from where Einstein left it. And I would say all all modern research in general relativity that is sort of serious mathematically is based on his idea. So there's immense creativity in his mathematics, and uh, as a mathematical physicist myself, I would also say it's incredibly difficult to be both mathematically precise and physically relevant. Few people can do that. I would say Newton, von Neumann had a hand at it, and, and also Penrose. And also, he's a very nice guy. I mean, for someone of that caliber, I mean, he's amazingly friendly and modest. And uh, also very energetic. So the last time I saw him was July uh, last year, and we we talked and walked for for three hours. And he was 92. 
he was he's very generous very friendly and yeah he's certainly i would say my hero in science oh that's wonderful yeah so that is something to aspire to for all of us uh to be yeah there's one thing i forgot to say his playful side includes his almost professional level drawing so his scientific drawings are amazing so he has the craft of a professional artist yeah yeah, and I think you said you used some of those drawings in in uh, in your book. Yeah, so uh, some yeah. for which we couldn't get the copyright. My uh, my partner, who is an artist, actually redrew, and uh, she said it was so difficult to do this well. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. I I, uh, I appreciate hearing that hearing that story because uh, yeah, he's he's a remarkable contributor. Yes. Um, okay, now let's turn to one of the more profound challenges in quantum physics. Um, uh, the Schrodinger equations uh, developed by Erwin Schrodinger almost almost 100 years ago now provides yes. a precise mathematical description of quantum behaviors, but it only provides probabilities for the possible outcomes of quantum events. So if you believe physics is causally determined, as, as most of us did once upon a time, then this is very unsettling. Um, and one of the key milestones in that debate is what's known as Bell's theorem that goes back almost 60 years ago, which demonstrates that quantum physics is indeterminate. And this is the topic of your prize winning FQXI essay on undecidability and indeterminism, which is again cited in the show notes. So as simply as you can, tell us about, tell us about Bell's theorem and the proposal to rescue determinism through these things called hidden variables. Just fill us in on that, on that discussion point, that debate. Yeah, good question. I'll, I'll try, and it's not easy, because Bell's paper uh, has more than 10,000 citations, and I would say there are also about 10,000 opinions about what it means. Uh, everyone would say it's very simple, and this is what it means. And I'm one of these 10,000 people, and I can't represent the entire literature, but the way I take it is uh, as follows. It basically establishes a, a contradiction between uh, assumptions that are very natural to make about physical theories and that before quantum mechanics uh, were unchallenged. Uh, and I would say uh, Bell was not the first to, to give this type of analysis. It goes back to a paper by Einstein, Podolsky and Rosen in 1935. So it's really Einstein and his uh, colleagues who launched the, the kind of reasoning that Bell basically completed. And uh, as I see it, but again, many people say different things. Uh, it's uh, It establishes the impossibility to say that physics is both local and deterministic and compatible with quantum mechanics, plus a fourth assumption I will state later, because Bell initially, I think, overlooked it. But the first few ones, as, as you said, uh, quantum mechanics via the, the Schrodinger equation and what we call the Born probabilities uh, makes probabilistic predictions only. So you can't say what the outcome of an experiment or a measurement is for certain. Uh, quantum mechanics doesn't say that. It just says that this is possible and that is possible and that is possible and it states the probabilities for all these possibilities. Now, if you would like a deterministic physics, 
uh, you would say that quantum mechanics is not complete. That's what Einstein said. It misses something. So that there's a hidden part in, quant in, in nature that is not captured by quantum mechanics. It's as if the president hides information from Congress. It's there, but it's sort of not known. And so this is a logical possibility that there are aspects of nature called hidden variables typically that quantum mechanics misses and that would be very, very hard to unearth, but are there. So that's an assumption you could make about nature and then Bell gives conditions if that is possible. And so the main condition that he states is locality, which will be excluded by his theorem. And that has to be um, said or explained in a, in a very, very precise way. So uh, as follows, uh, I hope you have time to listen to this because otherwise it, it doesn't really make much sense. So there are always two parties, which are called Alice and Bob, although these are not names that uh, either Einstein or Bell uh, ever used. It's a sort of modern uh, terminology. They're experimental physicists, they're, they're wide apart, and they do experiments. And so the locality assumption that Bell's theorem challenges is as follows. Assuming determinism, so assuming there is this hidden part of nature missed by quantum mechanics, but assuming it's there, then the outcomes of experiments are determined. And the locality assumption is that the outcomes of Alice's experiments cannot depend on the choice of experiments by Bob and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And this is subtle. You can't say her outcomes do not depend on Bob's outcomes yeah. because typically they do. But in quantum mechanics, and this was clear to people like Bohr and Heisenberg right from the start, it, it matters enormously which experiments you do. And if you do one, yeah. you can't do another. If you have a particle, you can't measure both position and velocity or momentum, etc. Yeah. Let me let me pause here yes. for a second because uh, the the simple way I understand this is to think about uh, what are called paired particles. So yes. you have a quantum event that produces two particles. You know they share uh, the same uh, physical characteristics, for example, of spin. And, and from this event that occurred, they go off into different directions, one of them that way, the other the other way, and Bob gets the chance to measure the spin of one of those particles, and Alice gets to measure the spin of the other particle. Yes. And it doesn't matter what order they measure them in, uh, it turns out that they will both measure the same outcome even though it was indeterminate. It could not be determined and it wasn't causally determined at the point those particles were created and started moving off. So, so yeah. the locality uh, uh, provision is the one that says, well, uh, there had to have been something at the time that event occurred because once they're on opposite sides of the universe, they, you cannot one cannot communicate to the other faster than the speed of light, right? No, so that's right. So everything you said is right. It would have been the next level of my explanation, which is now unnecessary. But uh, 
especially in that situation, they have a choice. So you have particles with spin and they can measure spin, let's say in the X direction or in the Z direction or in the Y direction. And these measurements are incompatible. They have to do one and they cannot do the other. And so either Alice and Bob make the same choices, which is the situation you described. So they both measure the spin, let's say in the up or the Z direction. And then they will always find the same outcome. But uh, what Bell, so the, this was actually what Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen already noted. So you basically gave their analysis. And this led to his famous uh, Einstein's debate with Bohr, and they sort of got stuck in who was right. So Einstein claimed that this showed that quantum mechanics was problematic and there had to be a deterministic layer. Bohr denied this, and they, they both died. <laughs> and the, the argument was unresolved. And, and so what Bell's contribution was, was the idea that also Bob and Alice could measure different directions for spin, like Alice could measure the horizontal or X direction, and Bob could measure the Z or the vertical direction. And, and then you get a very interesting mathematical situation uh, that leads to Bell's theorem. And, and then so Bell showed at first sight that this a combination of determinism of, of the factor is a hidden layer in nature missed by quantum mechanics, but, but which is there. This very specific locality uh, assumption that I uh, try to detail and the predictions of quantum mechanics, uh, which are statistical, cannot all be valid. That's basically his theorem, but it turned out much later that he himself made a hidden assumption that that was basically unearthed later. To really get a contradiction, you have to add a further assumption. Uh, which is sometimes called free choice or even free will, and which means that the choice of measurements by both Alice and Bob is independent of the state of the system that they measure. And this is usually yeah. taken for granted. It's what it means to do physics, some people would say. But in the technical and mathematical analysis, that is really an assumption you have to make. And this became clear since after Bell's theorem, people tried to sort of circumvent it. So again, this mm -hmm. contradiction is between the statistical predictions of quantum mechanics everyone believes, the assumption of determinism, the assumption of locality, and the assumption of free choice of experiments. Mm -hmm. And um, so I would say the first attempt to circumvent this was uh, by David Bohm. It's called Bohmian Mechanics. It gives up locality. So it's sort of, it's compatible with Bell's theorem and of all the possibilities, it gives up locality. And then you have a deterministic theory called Bohmian mechanics that reproduces quantum mechanics. Well, we will discuss later if that's really the case, but that's what people believed. And then the other way, the, the other logical out, uh, possibility uh, followed by the Dutch uh, Nobel Prize winner uh, Gerard het Hoofd, who was one of the leading particle physicists of the 1970s and 80s, but he also worked on the foundations of quantum mechanics. And he proposed a local deterministic theory, which he called the cellular automata interpretation of quantum mechanics. And then people just derided him saying that this is impossible and it violates Bell theorem. But in that light, it became clear that his theory violated this free choice assumption. But it was local and it was deterministic and it did satisfy the statistical predictions of quantum mechanics. Right. So just so to finish it, yeah. uh, uh, you can break in. The whole idea of these hidden variable theories 
is that quantum mechanics comes out when you average over the unknown or hidden state. And that this is possible in, in all these sort of uh, both Bohm and, and Tethoft and there are other possibilities too. And that this yeah. is the view I challenge myself. Right. So that's, I would just want to back up a second to, 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 to clear that up with my own words. Um, so the two loopholes to Bell's theorem that, that would potentially allow determinism to survive quantum mechanics were uh, the idea of uh, the non-locality of those hidden variables, like mm -hmm. the, uh, the perhaps some warping of space-time that would allow some communication between locations in different parts of the universe, or what yes. Bohmian mechanics, which I don't understand. So there's a loophole, possible loophole there. And the other loophole is to say that, well, really, Bob and Alice don't have free will, and it's already determined at the beginning, so they, they end up doing what what they are determined to do rather than having free choice. And so that opened the possibility of, yes, Bell's theorem, quantum mechanics, uh, and determinism. Yeah. And your essay, the FQXI essay, uh, makes a demonstration that that's not possible. And um, so uh, tell us how you tell us how you went about that. Uh, that demonstration. Yeah, so I thought about what it actually means to reproduce the statistical predictions of quantum mechanics. And in the case of Bell's theorem and, and similar results, what it is taken to mean is that the average probabilities that come out in long runs of measurements, so typically these Alice and Bob experiments are repeated really billions and billions of times. And then you have various outcomes with various probabilities, and the, these probabilities are determined by averaging. So if you compare this with a coin flip, so suppose we have a fair coin, uh, equal chances of up and down, and you throw it uh, maybe a thousand times, and then you count the number of heads, which will be approximately 500, and you count the number of tails, and it will be about 500, and you say on that basis, the probability of heads is 50%, or one half, mm -hmm. as we say. Yeah. And so is the probability of, of heads. So th th that's one way to look at the statistical predictions of quantum mechanics. It's you take a long run of measurements and you average, basically. Yeah, that's and you talk about that at the frequentist that, 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 that's You look the at the frequency, uh, you average it, yeah. and you say, all right, well, I've done a thousand of them and it should come out to like, you know, 500 heads and 500 Yeah, so, so that, that's was used by Bell in a very creative way by, by using the, these correlated uh, states. But there's another thing, uh, and, and this is what my work focuses on. You could take the outcome sequence of a measurement run by itself. So uh, again, taking this example of throwing... Uh, a coin uh, 1,000 times, you just don't count how many ups and downs or heads or tails there are. Let's call them zeros and ones. The, the binary situation is enough. So you just don't uh, count the number of zeros and the number of, the number of ones in the outcome. You just write them down, zero, one, one, zero, one, one, zero. You just write down a 1,000 numbers. There are zeros and ones. And then it turned out, and that was half of my proof, so to speak, um, quantum mechanics does much more than predict that 
the average is 50% of zeros and the average is one is 50% in, in an Alice and Bob typical kind of situation. It actually gives very specific predictions for the kind of pattern of this sequence of zeros and ones. So uh, I used sort of more delicate, more refined predictions of quantum mechanics than just the probabilities. And, and here you can see that there, there, there are many, many more possibilities when, when you're open to studying the entire outcome sequence. For example, uh, you could have 50% uh, of zeros and 50% of ones in, let's say, a really random way, there's zero, zero, one, zero, one, one, zero, just what we would all agree to be a somewhat random pattern. We could make it technical later on. Or you could have a, an outcome sequence like zero, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero, one, zero, one, etc. That would also have the right 50-50 probabilities, but it's not what quantum mechanics actually says. And Bell's kind of analysis doesn't distinguish these two cases. Bell only looked at the probabilities obtained by averaging and counting frequencies. And so the, the, the key to my work uh, was to look at the outcome sequence as a whole. And then mm -hmm. it turned out that in the 1960s, uh, various mathematicians, of whom I think Kolmogorov is, is the most famous one, in the US also Gregory Chaitin made a large contribution to this field uh, called algorithmic, algorithmic randomness. Uh, these mathematicians actually studied what it means for a sequence to be random. And this is not so easy, in fact. So I, I tried mm -hmm. to give an example, and I said we, we all have a feeling of what it means for a sequence to be random, and 0, 1, 0, 1, 0, 1, 0, 1, uh, etc. is not a random sequence, but it's a technical sort of achievement of these mathematicians to actually define what it means for a sequence to be random. So that's a, an explanation, I think, of uh, something that is more uh, random, if you will, than simply having an average that, uh, that over, over a long sequence of trials approaches a certain result that you would expect if the coin tosses were random. And no, that's uh, right. I want to yes. take, yeah, I want to take a second and, and um, ask about, um, to a follow-up about that Kolmogorov or algorithmic complexity. Um, how does that relate to um, kind of this, the idea of computer algorithms? Yeah, so that, that was in fact Kolmogorov's vision or idea to relate these things, which was completely new at the time. And this, uh, you used the word uh, complexity, that's why we're in your podcast. This is the complexity part, so to speak. And so uh, Komogorov's uh, idea was that the, the randomness of a, a long sequence of zeros and ones, for example, uh, should be defined via the complexity of the computer program that could produce such a series. And so basically his idea was that uh, a sequence like 0, 1, 0, 1, 0, 1, etc., however long it is, even if it's repeated billions of times, can be produced by a very, very short computer program saying just print 0, 1, half a billion times, and you have it. So that's not a complex series. It's not random. And then what he proposed was that a truly random series could not be produced by a computer program except by simply printing it. Mm 
And uh, so uh, I like the analogy of paintings. Um, so if you take two very famous paintings, there's this black square by Malevich, the first so-called modern painting. It's just a black square. And if I tell you it's a black square, you have some good idea of what it is. If you take paintings by Jackson Pollock, and my favorite uh, one is called Lavender Mist, but, but it applies to many of his works, you cannot describe these paintings except by seeing them. I, I could not describe any of his paintings of this dripping face. And, and so from this Kolmogorov point of view, the, the paintings by, by Pollock are typically random. The only way to describe them is to have them in full, Whereas the, uh, the way to describe non-random sequences is to compress them. So another way to say this is that uh, a random sequence is incompressible. It, it has no patterns that allow you to compress it without any loss of information. Right. You also, also have this in music. Mm -hmm. So classical yeah. music is typically very compressible because there's so many harmonies and patterns, whereas what's often called modern music has to be listened to. You, you cannot compress it uh, in a lossless way. So right. that was Komogorov's genius. To, to I just wanted to, yeah, pardon me. I, I just want to, I have another analogy that is sometimes helpful for people in mm -hmm. understanding this algorithmic complexity. Um, and one way of thinking about it is that, uh, you know, the computer algorithm will allow you to find a shortcut of how to make that string of uh, numbers, for example, or string of data um, in a shortcut rather than having yes. to list them all out there. So that that shortcut is a kind of compressibility. You can make an algorithm that's a lot simpler than just the list of the strings, but something that's really random, you will not be able to find that and it will be un uncompressible as you, as you said. Yeah, that, that's um, exactly right. And, and to strengthen this uh, and to illustrate how subtle the situation is, if you take pi, the number 3.14, etc., if you look at the statistical distribution of the decimals or the digits, it looks very random and it has survived all randomness tests imaginable so far. And yet it's non-random in the sense of Kolmogorov because you can compute every decimal of pi with a very short algorithm or a very short computer program. So the, 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 the 010101 example I, I gave was, was the simplest, but, but even pi is an example of a non-random number despite appearances. And so that's the strength of Kolmogorov's number and also the difficulty. It, it's very hard to actually prove that, that the number is random or non-random. Yeah, there's a way of, I, I think, as you describe it in your paper, you take, you take segments or sections of the infinite string that you have from, you know, from these quantum events. And you, you can look at each one of those segments. And, uh, if, if all of the segments you look at and continue to look at are non-compressible, that gives that property of, uh, uh, of randomness for that uh, for that infinite string is that the way that works? Yeah, that, that, that's right. But but proving that even the finite segments are incompressible is impossible. So one of the amazing features of this analysis, and also the key to the the result that I proved, is exactly that that uh, for finite random sequences, if you're given one, you will not be able to prove its randomness. 
So there's a crazy, really crazy situation that you can actually show that the overwhelming majority of both finite and infinite sequences are random in this sense of Kolmogorov, but you cannot give a single example. And if you are given a candidate, you will not be able to prove that it is random. Although, again, the overwhelming number of sequences is random. And that was actually the key to my theorem. So that's the property that a deterministic theory can never reproduce. So this unprovability of randomness, uh, that's really what contradicts determinism and makes deterministic theories underlying quantum mechanics impossible. So there are two sides to my proof. One is that quantum mechanics actually does produce random sequences in the sense of Kolmogorov that we discussed. And the, the other half of the proof is that no deterministic theory could reproduce this. Although a deterministic theory could reproduce these averaging probabilities. But if you look at the sequences as a whole, as this sort of global property of randomness, that's what a deterministic theory can never reproduce, whereas quantum mechanics does. And, that and that's the real contradiction. Yeah, that's, that's a demonstration that was not possible 50 years ago. When no, that's right. And that has uh, nothing to do with yeah. locality or Alice and Bob. It's enough to just have Alice or Bob. And then and this whole idea yeah. of EPR correlation is, is unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting relationship between, between the physics and the confusions that we've seen in physics and then the develop, a, a later development in mathematics which yes. provides an additional way of looking at uh, randomness. It's not, it's not merely indeterminate, but it is, uh, you know, it is random in, in uh, you know, uh, under the definition of uh, Kolmogorov complexity. Oh, exactly. And, uh, yes. Well, th but the other part of it is that determining whether something is random is unprovable. Exactly. You yeah. summarized this extremely well. Yeah, that's difficult. That's very yeah. hard to follow. <laughs> Great job. So. Yeah. And so I want to, another concept that's been argued a lot over the, over the uh, century is um, what's known as Laplace's demon. Yes. Uh, the idea that uh, if, if you knew all of the starting points of every particle in the universe, and then you run the mathematics out there, you would be able to predict the future. It's a deterministic process, yeah. like billiard balls on a billiard table is deterministic. And that was known as Laplace's demon yes. that would be able to make that determination. But your your proof really shows that that is that's not possible. That's an illusion. In well, particular. I wouldn't say that. Uh, it's not possible and consistent with quantum mechanics. So my proof has two sides. So one actually uses what we call the Born rule, the exact mathematical description for quantum mechanical probabilities in the more refined form uh, given by John von Neumann. That's one half of the proof. The other half of the proof is this algorithmic randomness theory. And uh, so the way I see it, if you give up the Born rule, so if you actually give up the idea that the statistical or probabilistic predictions of quantum mechanics are exactly right, then the proof breaks down because this is what I assumed. And then you could have deterministic theories underlying quantum mechanics. And I even believe that that's the case. 
So I personally think that quantum mechanics is not the final world, word, and maybe even for the reasons Einstein said, but, but people like Einstein and Bell and all, all, everyone looking at this question still assumed that these probabilistic predictions were exactly right. It's funny, but you can actually state that statistical or probabilistic predictions are exactly right. And this is a meaningful statement if you average over long runs of, uh, of measurements. Right. But once you surrender the Born rule, once you surrender the exact mathematical expression for probabilities, yeah, so my argument breaks down and there could be a deterministic theory. And that's what I think, because I believe quantum mechanics is actually emergent from uh, a sort of a lower-lying or more fundamental theory to be oh, discussed. Yeah, that's interesting, and you, you don't go into that in your... Um, no, that, uh, that's right. So paper, I'm looking at the idea that... So let me, let me see if I can put some common words around. It's like the, the Born rule says the probabilistic uh, outcomes predicted are exact, and, uh, and, and you're saying that maybe that rule needs to be abandoned or set aside. And the analogy might be that rather than being exactly perfectly probabilistic in the way described, maybe there's some sort of a wobble or yes. wiggle or something that's not necessarily, hasn't been found yet, hasn't been discovered, but something that would still recover the determinism that that you feel is in uh, is in place is that a fair characterization? Yeah, exactly. And it, it's it's simple. What could go wrong? Suppose that it, so in quantum mechanics there is the idea of a fair coin toss. You can make devices. Uh, these are quantum random number generators. You could actually buy commercially, and they claim to give random sequences of zeros and ones with exact 50-50 outcome probabilities. Now, suppose that, in fact, these outcomes are 0.49999, etc., et stopping at some point, and the other is 5.00001. That would already break the Born rule. It could be just a, a mistake in the 20th decimal in the Born rule. That's enough to violate my proof. I need the exact probabilities as given by quantum mechanics for the argument to work. It wouldn't uh, really challenge the usefulness of these quantum random number generators. They will still be random for all practical purposes. Mm -hmm. But for the kind of fundamental reasoning that I used and also that Bell used, uh, this would be enough for the argument to break. And, and so... If there is this underlying theory, it need not reproduce the exact probabilities. It must, in fact, deviate from them. And this it could do in, in, in any, at any level, the 10th decimal, the 100th decimal, any violation invalidates my proof. Hmm. And so I see that, a possibility for determinism. Yeah, is that, that ultimately, do you believe that the determinism or indeterminism is going to be provable? Uh, well, well, no, I don't think it's ultimately provable in an absolute sense. So you could always have theories succeeding each other where one, like quantum mechanics, has the appearance of, determ of indeterminism. <clears throat> As you know, quantum mechanics in some way gives rise to classical physics 
Uh, in fact, I wrote a 1,000-page book about that. So quantum mechanics uh, by itself, in its official probabilistic version, still manages to reproduce classical physics in a certain limit. So you can go from an indeterministic theory to a deterministic theory. You can go from a deterministic theory, like a hidden variable theory, to an indeterministic theory, like quantum mechanics. And this could go on and on and on. So you see this as uh, as an open field for future research and oh absolutely yeah and will that and, and ever it, yeah will there ever be a final answer no I, I don't think so but but this in itself just distinguishes myself from most people if you take a field like quantum quantum gravity often seen as the holy grail of theoretical physics everyone working in quantum gravity takes quantum theory as given, including its mm -hmm. exact probabilistic predictions. Mm -hmm. Except Roger Penrose, another reason to admire him. He's one of the very, very few people to say that actually you might need to change quantum mechanics. I think quantum gravity people typically assume quantum theory and change gravity or general relativity. So Penrose and also I we say the opposite. Let's engineer quantum mechanics one way or the other mm. and make it compatible with relativity. Yeah. yeah. Klaus, you almost have me convinced. Good. We're close. <laughs> okay. I want to change uh, change gears a little bit and talk about another of the puzzles of uh, mm -hmm. modern physics, and that's known as the fine-tuning problem. And you have a very, oh, nice, yeah. very nice article on this. It's in the show notes. Um, it's called The Fine-Tuning Argument. So just what are some of the facts in observed, uh, observed facts in physics that lead people to conclude that the universe has these very, very unique characteristics, like one of a kind, unique characteristics? Well, yeah, so the, the, this, uh, this question has two sides. Um, let's take the one that's easy to, to answer, uh, namely which parameters or facts are in fact believed to be fine-tuned. And the really difficult question is, fine-tuned to what? To life. To life with the biochemistry we know, or just to the existence of galaxies, which is already non-trivial, the existence of planets. So then, then that's, uh, that's a difficult question, to what we fine-tune. But the things that do the fine-tuning, I think, are easy to explain and less controversial. And there are two sides, so and that, that makes this incredibly interesting. So part of cosmology is fine-tuned, and part of particle physics is fine-tuned. So if you take elementary particle physics, let's say the quantum mechanics of the very smallest distance scales we have science about, and we have uh, the cosmos that is also fine-tuned in a completely different way. And in fact, the cosmological fine-tuning is easier to explain, I think, uh, if you take the average density, matter and energy combined uh, density of the universe as it is now and calculate it back to what it was, this we can do, uh, just a little after the Big Bang. Uh, then it turns out that at that time, if this matter and energy density had been 10 to the minus 50 difference, an incredible small margin difference, if it had been smaller than what it is, uh, the universe would have expanded very quickly. There would be no stars, no galaxies, no life. 
if it had been ever so slightly bigger than what it actually was, then there would be more gravity and the universe would have recollapsed very quickly and there would have been no galaxies and stars and planets either. So this uh, energy and matter density is one of these fine-tuned parameters and the deeper you go back in time, the higher the fine-tuning and let's say after one-tenth of a second, it was fine-tuned to an incredible degree. So, so that's, that's, I think, still the best yeah. example. Either yeah, we would have recollapsed immediately or we would have expanded so quickly that there would be nothing, like structure. Right, and that's, a, that's an example of, if we go to complexity science, where we talk about chaotic systems that are very, very sensitive to initial conditions. Yeah, so, so you have this... We, we only know the conditions, yeah. yeah, we only know the conditions back to, a, you know, very close to the Big Bang, but those initial conditions were very, very remarkably fine-tuned so that the universe right. we live in today came about. Yeah, yeah. but to finish the, the argument on the other side, on the, the, the microscopic side, I mean, even if the cosmology is, is correct, is, as it is, so that we're here to, to talk, I mean, if, uh, for example, the masses of the up and down quarks or some of the strengths of the fundamental interactions had been slightly different, uh, for example, the, the quark masses have been very well studied. If they would be different by, let's say, one order of magnitude from what they are, and it's especially the mass difference between the up and the down quarks, then there would be no nuclear fusion. Uh, that, that's part of the electroweak interaction, as we say, this process. And there would be no stars and no galaxies, and it would all have been completely different, and we wouldn't be here. And there are other cases. So there's fine-tuning in the microscopic parameters and there's fine-tuning in the macroscopic parameters. And they both, well, they, so I would say they work independently, but they both work towards the same idea of fine-tuning. Yeah. And, this and at, is, this, uh, at this point, yeah, at this point, there's no, uh, there's no theory that pulls all those together to say that, uh, well, this is why these things are the way they are. It's simply the observed nature of this universe we're in um, has these characteristics. These characteristics were essential to the formation of stars and galaxies and the formation of the elements and carbon and a certain thing and, you know, subject to certain, you know, that, that created an environment and at least one one planetoid that resulted in the development of higher biochemistry that started self-replication and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, bingo, we ended up with life and we ended up with, yeah. you know, evolution and we ended up with people. And here we are pondering these, uh, these issues. Um, no, I agree. I don't know mostly, why. Um, except, so I think on the elementary particle physics side, this is completely correct. What you're saying on the cosmology side, uh, that there still is the idea that this uh, theory of inflation actually solves the fine-tuning problems in cosmology, uh, which may be the case, but, but these inflationary scenarios themselves have to be fine-tuned to an extent that is even more spectacular than the fine-tuning in cosmology that they're supposed to solve. So uh, inflation is still unclear whether that has happened or not, but even if it's correct... It has its own fine-tuning problems, and yeah. the problem is just moved. Yeah. So you, in your in your essay, you talk about five different ways of thinking about this problem of fine-tuning, and I wonder if you just walk walk us through those five uh, those five possibilities. 
Yeah, uh, so the, the, the first possibility uh, is, is design. I mean, that's a very old Christian, also Jewish argument, and I'm sure other civilizations or religions had similar ideas, that simply there's a creator who created the world in exactly the way it is, with the goal of being as it is, and especially of uh, humans to, to live and and believe in God, so to speak. So the, the, the argument of design, technically you have the argument of design and from design, but, but that's secondary. So the idea of a creator, let's say with a goal and a will, that, so that, that's a possibility. Uh, the other possibility is, uh, I think, favored by most secular physicists. It's called the multiverse. That means that yes, this universe is fine-tuned, but it's just one in a collection of innumerably many other universes. They all have different parameters, and well, one had to be, because there are so many of them, one had to be right for life, and of course we are in that, because we couldn't be in any of the other ones, because there is no life. I mean, the logic of this argument is, is suspicious, I think, and uh, also there still is no good theory that gives rise to it. So inflation gives rise to a, a multiverse, but is extremely speculative and has to be fine-tuned. So there's this landscape idea in string, super string theory, that gives rise to a multiverse in a way, but, but string theory also is extremely speculative and unproved. So I, I, I myself don't take the multiverse seriously, but, but almost everyone you would interview who, who knows modern physics will point at that as the solution. So here I have really a minority view, which is I, I'd rather have design than that. Mm -hmm. So that's the second one. Uh, the, the third one, I, I would say, is blind chance. It's in a way similar to the multiverse, but you can also have it if there's just a single universe. So if there is a single universe and you believe there are all these possibilities for the parameter values in particle physics and in cosmology, well, it could simply be that it's like the way it is without any further explanation. So things happen in life with any further, without further explanation. So it's the that's the way it is argument. Okay, uh, the fourth one, which I call blind necessity, I also use the word blindness, means uh, what Einstein felt was the case that the laws of nature are fixed, including the values of the parameters. So he would say, in fact, he wrote this in, in one of his last essays in 1949. He wrote this explicitly. He said, well, we have laws of nature that we know to some extent. They have parameters that with our current knowledge are free. They could have another value as far as our knowledge is concerned. But in fact, if we were to know all of physics, we would fix the parameter values, there's no choice at all. This is also basically what Spinoza said. Had he known modern physics, he, he would have used the same argument. Mm -hmm. And I call it blind because both Spinoza and uh, Einstein would say that although it's sort of necessary, there's no design behind it. it again, it's, it's the way it is. But it's different from blind chance. Mm -hmm. And then the fifth way, so to speak, is that the whole problem is misguided, and I tend toward that, it, as I can explain if we have time, but, but the, the, this is what I really believe, that the whole finding fine-tuning problem is, is really a bit of a non-issue. 
Mm-hmm. Being sort of yeah, I think, uh, and I think you suggested you suggested in your essay that it's a good good candidate for therapy. Mm. Yeah, as I did this, I learned from Wittgenstein this point of view that philosophical problems are not problems; they're reasons to go to a therapist. Yeah, let me let me ask you. This is a speculation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, certainly many people before Darwin had uh, all sorts of concepts about why there were bones in the earth and, you know, dinosaurs and, you know, uh, how things came to be the way they were. And Darwin was able to explicate the process of, you know, uh, mutation and natural selection. And is there a possibility that that the problem of fine tuning is really something like that, that, that in the context of the, the, the early moments of the uh, the existence of the universe, we still don't know first cause, but you know, in the early moments, there are there were processes in play in terms of breaking of symmetry under conditions, and then uh, and then an emergence of properties that needed that were selected, essentially yeah. among alternatives in a, in an evolutionary sense, not a not a deterministic sense, not in a deistic sense, but just a just a set of processes that evolved in a certain way, and certain properties emerged with those particular. And then this cascading process of the emergence of the universe ended up following a pathway that was laid out through the emergence of of, uh, of these uh, constants that that yielded a universe. So maybe it's a little bit like blind necessity. But it's a process yes. of emergence that we can't describe. Is that does that make any sense? Yeah. So I I learned this point of view from Lee Smolin, who's one of the physicists working in quantum, one of the leading people in quantum gravity. And so on the one hand, I sympathize with mechanisms like that, but I also feel they go somewhat beyond what we can ever know. So in my own work, I, I stay close to the facts. And scenarios like that are so speculative and go so far beyond not only what we know, but I think what we even can know, that we would never be able to prove such a scenario. But but again, I sympathize with it. Yeah. uh, uh, A favorite quote of mine from Wittgenstein at the end of the Tractatus is, that whereof we cannot speak, we must remain silent. Yeah, I'm on that side. Uh, although, again, I admire physicists who are not silent, but but they still they, they seem to overestimate the power of the human intellect. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah the the balance between humility and hubris is often uh, exactly right, it's, it's yeah. on the wrong side. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'd like to change gears again and go in a different yeah. direction here. Klaus, uh, uh, were you raised in a religious tradition? Yes. So my, my parents were uh, Roman Catholic at a time, so this is the 1930s and 1940s, that even in Amsterdam, they met the first non-Catholics only after they were 20. So they, they, they were in a closed community. Uh, the Catholics went to the same schools. They had their own sports clubs. They had their own dancing societies. And that's in a place like Amsterdam. It's really remarkable. And so I was raised uh, in that tradition, although when I grew up, which was in the 1960s and 70s, there wasn't this isolation anymore. But I still went to a Catholic. I was educated by the Jesuits. Like the the current Pope is uh, is also a Jesuit. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, when I was about 12 or 13, 
my parents actually were knocked off their faith uh, by a, a certain preacher who is well known in the Netherlands called Oosterhuis, who uh, was a Jesuit himself who had married and had been expelled from the Society of Jesus, from mm -hmm. the Jesuits. And uh, as some sort of a revenge, maybe, he started his own church. And uh, he was a good theologist and a fantastic preacher. He wrote his own songs and hymns. And uh, so half of, uh, of Catholic Amsterdam actually went to him, like a mm. flock of sheep. Mm. He, he's still alive, in fact. And so, so slowly he, just, he, he changed the nature of Catholicism in the Netherlands. And so he himself would state that he's religious, but that's not what he brought across. So the mm. people he brought to his church lost their Catholic faith, but didn't sort of re-enter it through the back door uh, as he had done himself. And so my father died five years ago, and during his last year he had uh, stomach cancer and was determined to die, so to speak. And I talked uh, almost every day with him about his life, and he felt increasingly frustrated about his Catholic youth, and especially about the dogmatism. Mm -hmm. And so this, uh, this preacher, Osterhuis, had opened his eyes to the possibility of a non-dogmatic way of believing, and that led mm. to not believing. Mm. And this, this um, irritation with the dogmatism of the Catholic Church I share. So I, I don't see myself as an atheist, but rather mm -hmm. as a sort of a mysticist. Mm -hmm. I'm searching, I'm groping. Um, but I, I wouldn't want to enter, enter any religion that is dogmatic. Yeah. Yeah. As the Roman Catholics, I think, still are in many ways based officially on a series of dogmas. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that the you know the the Jesuit tradition has a has a reputation for a commitment to science and inquiry. Oh yes, and, I had great teachers. And, yes. Yeah, and many many Jesuits have sort of drifted off for the same reason. I think because of the. The dogmatism the central church can can be now they're admirable uh, if you look at the yeah. history of the scientific revolution so did the jesuits played a role just, just a little bit before galileo they, they were mm -hmm. the first to use mathematics mm -hmm. in physics mm -hmm. for example yeah. and they had an observatory in rome which was in, which was important yeah. Yeah. so i have um, that side too yeah and i uh i think reading from uh i think it might have been in the preface or introduction of your of your textbook uh you started early in the study of math and physics um so there but there was a certain amount of passion that drove you into the field yeah to be honest in my youth i i mainly played chess so half of my childhood between say 10 and 20 was devoted to playing chess but so between the lines, I, I did read books by Einstein and Heisenberg and Bohr, also Bertrand Russell. And uh, yeah, I had this passion, at least uh, chess is also an exact game. It has very precise rules and you have precise strategies. And then uh, I left chess for mathematics and physics, so to speak. Mm. So yeah, I had the passion yeah. also for books and for learning very early. Yeah, even though chess is a deterministic game in a certain sense, it also dra drags you quickly into complexity. Yes, um, it's a complex game. Come to think of it, since we discussed uh, John Bell and his theorem, a book I remember from my childhood is called The Dancing Wu Lee Masters by a guy called Gary Zukav. 
And it, it's about the relationship between quantum mechanics and Eastern-style spiritualities, like the Tao of Physics by Capra. And this book is actually very good. I mean, he explains Bell's theorem very well. That, that I also read when I was maybe 15 or 16, and it drove me into theoretical physics. Yeah, oh, that's a wonderful pathway. So you seem uh, quite comfortable with, I, I, it's, it sounds like you, you have, a, have an ultimate belief in the determinism of, of the, the world we're in, but uh, the fact that right now there's no clear pathway to define that or prove that. And, you know, so we live in this uncertain, indeterminate place, but you seem to be comfortable with that and with the pursuit of, of these bigger questions uh, without getting... Um, you know, sort of existentially challenged or concerned. Is that a fact? Ah, I, I don't feel comfortable at all with with this. It, it's interesting that, that you believe that on the basis of what I write. Um, I, I just like to figure out the way the world is. And uh, if you compare this with studying history, human history, I'd like to figure out how it is or how it was but I don't feel comfortable at all with human history. And it's similar with physics. And I would say neither a deterministic nor an indeterministic world would make me feel comfortable. I live in existential angst. Mm -hmm. And I would say that doing this kind of physics that I do, sort of fundamental science, is uh, an escape route from this existential angst. So I, I don't feel comfortable at all. Except mm -hmm. by actually figuring out how things work, but then the results feed this angst. Yeah, yeah. So it's not so um, easy. Yeah. So you said earlier that you uh, perhaps had a uh, uh, was it was the word mystical? Yeah, I see uh, myself as a mystic. Yeah, uh, mysticism. Okay. So I believe there's a huge mystery we will not never be able to to penetrate or or understand. Yeah. That's my core yeah, belief. Like, Right, like the the first cause. I mean, we may have a pretty good picture of the I initial moments after the Big Bang, but you know, it's it's never going to be. You know, how, how can we? Ever, how can you ever answer the question of a first cause? In that no, case? that's right, and, and so uh, I believe that the the great religions do not have the answer to this point. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I would be a believer and maybe still a Catholic even. But mm -hmm. uh, I think it's at a at a level that is totally inaccessible to us, the explanation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I have, a, I have a last question I like to ask my guests, mm -hmm. and that's, um, uh, I mean, I like the way you put that in terms of the, the mystery that's, that's here, and you're pursuing these questions because it's one way of alleviating the, you know, the angst of, that, yeah. of those questions. Um, have you ever had a personal experience yourself that, that felt, magical or mystical something that influenced your life you don't really have a good explanation and you know but it just feels like it was yeah important. that's a great question so i'm divorced and uh, the way i met my current wife was incredible so we we met on a boat during the corona period it was extremely unlikely we would be on that boat at the same time we were we were wearing face masks. Uh, we were even separated by something like a plastic transparent curtain, so we couldn't even see each other well. 
And nonetheless, we did see each other. And so now we are uh, the happiest couple you could imagine. Also, many sort of fine-tuned details are exactly right in a way that is almost unimaginable and suggests. You see, in, in the Jewish Orthodox tradition, you know, these people have, have matchmakers or, or brokers. And I mean, even the best broker wouldn't have been able to accomplish this. Yeah. And the, the, this is magical and yeah. uh, incomprehensible, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and there's no algorithm that could possibly be invented. No, no, if I had gone to a dating site which uses algorithms after my divorce, this would never have been the outcome. Yeah. It's pure magic. Well, Klaus, thanks you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation. You've taken oh. us on quite a journey, and, uh, um, and I really appreciate your, your candor, your openness, and, uh, and the joy that you have both in your marriage, current marriage, as well as in the pursuit of these wonderful questions. Um, thanks for thanks for joining me. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to have this conversation. I've said things I've never said to anyone before. So there you are. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Making Sense of Complexity. We'll be taking a break. In the meantime, please explore the websites of our collaborators, Complexity Adventures, PlankSip, and Talk of Today and join the conversation on our social media outlets or on spiralinquiry.org. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Stay well and have a great week.